This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast about a little-known group of activists in the mid-20th century and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership and relationships. I'm Dr. Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University. Over the course of several years, I decided to take a different look at how the law came to be as we know it. I delved into the stories of a group of women and men known as the Married Women's Association, a name that doesn't sound particularly radical, even though it was. Theirs is a story involving dramatic clashes with those at the heart of lawmaking processes. And I was curious to learn how these quiet revolutionaries came together to fight for equality in marriage and to expose the flaws of a legal system that failed women. In this podcast series, I explore the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I'll be going back in history to uncover how this group's attempts at reform created unexpected ripples that connect to fundamental principles of equality today. This is episode two. last episode, we heard how the Married Women's Association was founded as a group to make marriage into an equal partnership, which in turn would elevate the economic and legal status of married women. We heard how in 1937, Dorothy Evans, a former militant suffragette, had had a vision for this group. She'd recruited Australian Juanita Francis to lead it, who was then 37, new to feminism and soon to be divorced. Shortly after Francis took up this position, the Married Women's Association became an independent pressure group, and it was up to Francis to recruit new members. In this second episode, I'll look inside this pressure group to explore who some of those members were, including prominent MPs, early female lawyers and famous authors. We'll see how many of them were pioneering in their own right, but that their strident personalities could also make them difficult to work with. Understanding who these people were is an important part of making sense of the reform they ultimately pursued, an untold yet important part of the history of women's rights and the law. It was 1938 and the Married Women's Association was in its early days. It operated in a similar way to older generations of feminists. The association's structure was based upon a committee system with a London-based executive committee and local branches across England. It was non-sectarian, non-party political and encouraged membership across the political spectrum. Membership was open to both women and men, unlike many similar women's organisations and pressure groups at that time. When it was first established as a subcommittee of the six-point group, it had very few members. But Frances soon drew in membership from outside with two men, solicitor Ambrose Appelby and journalist Joseph Salt, joining and remaining with the association for many years. In Juanita Frances's words, which an actor has voiced here, she was soon voted in as chairman of the group. I hired a room and we had three meetings there. And then... I got a solicitor on the committee and a journalist and they suddenly said, 
I vote we have a new chairman. And I was so inexperienced, I, I didn't quite know what to do. But I could see they couldn't do anything because they were so silly themselves. While she could be quite self-deprecating, this interview extract suggests Juanita Francis was clearly critical of some of the early members of this group too. The solicitor to whom she refers, who was there from the start, was a man named Ambrose Apelby. So why did Juanita Francis describe this solicitor as silly? Well, we don't know for certain, but it does seem that Apelby was sometimes viewed as eccentric. For instance, he founded the Smell Society along with George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. The society sought to eliminate foul odours, while aiming to create new words to describe smells such as roast turkey, mimosa and tar. I asked Ambrose Apelby's son, Felix Apelby, about this. And Shaw, he'd write to Shaw and say, uh, there's another one he wanted to start a society for the, the Smell Society. He says, smell is a very neglected sense. Uh, we should make more of this, which it is a very powerful thing. And um, so he writes to Bernard Shaw and says, would you become the, my first president of the Smell Society? And Shaw in those days, he would turn the, the letter over and write on the reply on the back, send it back, you see. Delighted to become the president of the Stink Society. Yet when it came to his work in the law and with the Married Women's Association, we see another side to Apelby, as Felix explains. Coming back to the Married Women's Association, I think you know, he felt deeply that women needed a, a better lot. Because I suspect when he started, I mean, if a woman was, you know, if it was divorced and she'd committed adultery, that's it. No maintenance, no nothing, I think. He felt very strongly about people's lack of rights. Because being a lawyer acting for what I call really poor people, he could see their plight every day. Divorced from Britain's first female solicitor, Carrie Morrison, with whom he continued to run a law firm, Apelby was committed to elevating the status of women in law. He later said in an interview that he joined the Married Women's Association because of his experiences working in the East End of London, where he was overwhelmed by a sense of injustice. Here voiced by an actor. Sad, tragic stories such as the woman who came to me in despair because her husband had pawned the baby's cot. So he couldn't get it back because it was her husband's property by law. Apelby lived and worked at the charitable institution Toynbee Hall in London's East End as part of this institution's per man's lawyer service. Which is legal aid. You're sitting for 15 minutes and people just come in and give you their problem and you help them as much as you can and that's it, it's free. In amongst the doll queues waiting was a man who was incognito, and that was the Prince of Wales, who wanted to see real life. And he sat with my father for three weeks or three sessions or something, incognito, to hear what was being said by people, ordinary people. Apelby was a sartorial man with an idiosyncratic style, wearing flamboyant bow ties and floral buttonholes plucked from his garden. As a solicitor, his clients included Casablanca actress Ingrid Bergman and also Mandy Rice Davies, whom he guided through the infamous Profumo affair. But he also gave legal advice to poverty-stricken clients of the Married Women's Association, who could not otherwise afford legal advice to navigate their limited legal rights. This often meant representing women who couldn't afford as local rates, and Apelby needed to think outside the box to assist as many women as possible. 
His son recalled that Appelby acted for a lot of women in divorces and could do this cheaply and simply by having divorce petitions pre-printed. Then acted for a lot of women in, in divorces. You've got to remember that people had any money. And so he acted for a lot of prostitutes who wanted a divorce. He therefore had these divorce petitions which he pre-printed. And so in other words, you've got this printed form, pre-printed, we just filled in the blanks. The judge looked at this piece of paper, looked down his nose and said, who's done this? I want to see the solicitors who's done this. It's appalling or something like that. Bring him here. So my father has to go and uh, he said, what's the meaning of this? It's ruining the sanctity of marriage. Well, he says, I suppose I'll let it go through this time. You know? I illustrate the story because he's up against the establishment. So he's not always... He is persona guardi, but he's not. He's a maverick. Ambrose Appelby's son Felix also became a lawyer and reflected upon how such forms are now a normal and important part of legal procedure today. How funny that I mentioned the pre-printed divorce petition. It wasn't many years later, when I was doing divorces, later that, that the, you could go to Oyez, the printers, buy these forms, and frankly, if you didn't use the form pre-printed, you were castigated. This innovative thinking also showed itself in Appelby's work within the Married Women's Association. As well as drafting its constitution, he founded and chaired the Married Women's Association's legal committee. And, of course, it was very important having lawyers like Appelby, being a pressure group aiming to reform the law. In many ways, Ambrose Appelby, along with his ex-wife Carrie Morrison, were pioneers. As I've already mentioned, Carrie Morrison was the first woman to qualify as a solicitor in Britain, and with the Pelby, they ran a feminist practice helping women let down by the law. But the Married Women's Association had another jewel in its crown, considering it was a relatively small pressure group. It had Helena Normanton amongst its ranks. Helena Normanton was the first woman to practice as a barrister in Britain. She was well known for her activism, having been a suffragette and regular contributor to Good Housekeeping magazine explaining the law and in particular women's legal rights in clear and accessible terms. And she had decades of experience in law reform. I spoke to legal historian Dr Judith Bourne, who is Helena Normanton's biographer, about how she went from being a teacher to being the first female practising barrister. So Normanton says that she wants to become a lawyer because she has this experience when she's 12 in a solicitor's office with her mother, because her mother cannot understand the advice that's been given by the solicitor because it's to do with a mortgage and her mother just cannot understand. And the lawyer looks at Helena Normanton and he says to her, oh, I think, you know, you could understand. He's being really, she sees it as him being really patronising and she can understand and she explains what the, the solicitor is being saying. She explains the um, information to her mother and the solicitor says, oh, you're quite the little lawyer. And she says, right, I will be. And she says that she forms this idea that she's going to be a lawyer in that office at 12 years old. Now, I say I'm not convinced with whether that's true or whether that isn't a bit of the story. You know, some somehow Normanton's presenting this image of herself because her maternal grandfather had been in the police, the early Metropolitan Police Force. And I suspect she was quite interested in law from a very early age. And you know, she's got that influence. I suspect that she, you know, she was a teacher because that was the only job that was available to her. And probably she liked detective fiction. And so I suspect she just liked the whole idea of being a lawyer. 
I think she saw it as quite exciting. But, you know, we can only speculate or we can we can just accept that she made that decision at 12. But the fact that she did it, especially after a whole other life as a teacher, does show a level of tenacity and bravery that was shared by several leading members of the Married Women's Association. So I think Normanton really wanted to be a very successful lawyer because certainly she's talking about trying to move into equity and trust type cases, which were obviously the big earners. But she's realistic. She understands that her career really isn't going to be that successful because A, she's too old and B, she's the first. So she she understands that and she talks a lot in letters that she writes about opening up the law to women. So I see her almost as sort of this woman that's a bit like a plough. You know, she's ploughing a field and then other women can come behind her. So the work she does is really that poor person criminal work and family law work. And she she because she does talk um early on when she's been admitted to Middle Temple. She talks about wanting to do family work because she'll understand aspects of cases that men perhaps don't understand. So she's going to she wants to feminize the law to a certain extent. But I think she does a lot of family law work because that's the only work she can get. And I think solicitors and clerks are giving her that work because they think that's sort of women's work. But it's all well and good having experienced lawyers into advice on cases, reform and drafting legislation. The Married Women's Association also needed to get its bills, however, before politicians in Parliament, if there was any hope of their ideas becoming law. This is why having Edith Summerskill at the helm of the association for many years was so important. In the summer of 1938, Dr. Ada Summerskill attended the Married Women's Association's first public meeting. Afterwards, Juanita Francis wrote to Summerskill, asking could she help the newly formed Married Women's Association? And she agreed and became the group's first president in 1941. Summerskill was an ideal choice as president. She was a politician and a doctor, married to another doctor, Geoffrey Samuels. She'd been elected in a by-election earlier that year as Labour MP for Fulham West, previously a Tory stronghold that had been won with the support of working-class women. Summerskill took the seat in her own name, not her husband's, with quite a lot of controversy because she was the first woman to do this. Her background wasn't working-class, but she did have deep empathy for the plight of others. Her experiences as a doctor and as a doctor's daughter meant that she had witnessed suffering firsthand and she was a founder of the Socialist Medical Association and a driving force behind the establishment of the National Health Service. In a speech titled Why I Am a Socialist, broadcast on radio in 1948, Edith Summerskill told a story about the moment her political views were cemented when... Working as a doctor, she treated a young mother, starving and living in squalor, with her wedding ring tied to her finger with a thread to stop it slipping from her shrunken hands. Summerskill was influenced strongly by the experiences of women as she saw them, and her socialism was inextricably linked to her work in improving the lives of women too. As her daughter-in-law, Marley LaFollette, told me, You see, one of the things that I think Edith was able to do was to empathize with women whose situation were not the same as hers, even though she had a very different life uh, than they did, in that 
our family setup was as it was, yet she was able to understand that they had a problem, a real problem, and she could fight for it. You know, I think that was probably one of her strengths, even though she might have a difficult time in her family. I mean, because her children did not find her easy. Getting the Married Women's Association's issues inside the House of Commons was undeniably essential, for the association knew that this was where justice happened and where the structures that oppressed married women could be changed. Edith was able to do this both by raising issues in the Commons and by sponsoring the Married Women's Association's bills. As a result, the members called her Our God. Some of Summerskill's causes unrelated to women's issues were the subject of satire, such as when she was Minister of Food campaigning for butter to be replaced by margarine, and her later stance condemning the sport of boxing. She was often unwilling to compromise, and held a strong belief in what was right, even in the face of widespread dissent. Her grandson Ben Summerskill described her to me. And just as a side note, he's a prominent campaigner in his own right, having been, for instance, the chief executive of Stonewall, the largest gay equality body in Europe. One of Edith's personal strengths, which was also sometimes a weakness, that she brought to politics, that she tended to just be very single-minded and see things in quite a binary way. And while that sometimes comes over as confrontational or non-consensual, both in her personal life and publicly, of course, sometimes it also helps you get where you need to be because you have to paint things in quite monochrome colour. You know, if you get too nuanced and apologetic, you don't actually drive forward the political argument you want to prosecute. So Summerskill was not afraid to say what she thought, even if many, even most others disagreed. This might be why she was a pioneer when it came to identifying as feminist too. The other thing that's interesting about her feminism is that as far as I'm aware, she was the first woman politician who happily called herself a feminist. I mean, there are all sorts of women politicians who may well have been exemplifications of feminism and almost no woman politician nowadays right across the political spectrum has any difficulty saying they're feminists but I don't think you will ever find Barbara Castle or Margaret Bonfield or Ellen Wilkinson (laughs) saying they were feminists. They quite often still felt obliged to do kind of the old canard of I'm as good as a man and I'll do the same things a man does and hadn't actually got to the sophistication of being able to say, well, I might do things slightly differently because I'm a woman and the outcome will be as good as what a man, a male politician does, but I may not do it in in the same way. As well as legal and political connections, the Married Women's Association leadership also benefited from women who had been feminist campaigners for a long time. Teresa Billington Gregg, or Mrs BG as she was often known, is a good example of this. The Married Women's Association called her an old fighter because she had been a suffragette, a founding member of the Women's Freedom League and a prominent member of the WSPU although she resigned from the WSPU because she believed the Pankhurst leadership was too autocratic. Juanita Francis described her as being Tall, middle-aged thickness, she was fairly motherly, almost affectionate. 
On the other side, she could be very nasty. I knew that. The way she'd speak about some people, their lack of intelligence and ability, her brown eyes flashing. Frances first recalls Billington Gregg joining the Married Women's Association around 1939, when Frances was speaking at a suffragettes club in London. And she remained a Married Women's Association member until her death in 1964. Billington Gregg's style could be abrasive. Take, for example, Frances's description of her behaviour at one Married Women's Association Executive Committee meeting. A woman had some plan. So a special meeting was called and BG was there. She was furious. She stood up and went for this woman. She said, you've wasted all our time and we've all given up our evening and look what you've done. Nothing but a load of rubbish. (laughs) Something like that, she said. And we were all thinking that. But to have the courage to say it. This assertiveness and belief in what was right sometimes created tension within the association because of her tendency to take charge. Six Point Group member Sybil Morrison said, I admired her enormously, but I didn't like her. Or at least I didn't like her methods. There were also famous writers within the Married Women's Association. Fear Britain, who was a prominent pacifist and author of many best-selling books, including Testament of Youth, was one of the Married Women's Association's presidents. Fear Britain's high-profile name carried weight, and so her reputation and regard was incredibly important to the association. Political and philosophical writer Dora Russell was also a stalwart of the association, being a chairman before becoming president of the association in 1952. Like several other leading members, Dora Russell was divorced, having been married to mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell. Her involvement in the Married Women's Association is ostensibly surprising, given that she said she disapproved of marriage and had only agreed to marry Bertrand Russell because she wanted her son to be a legitimate heir to Bertrand's hereditary earlship. But her experiences demonstrate a keen awareness of gendered inequality in marriage, which might explain her devotion to the Married Women's Association's cause. Dora Russell didn't always have the easiest time being married to a much older, famous man. Bertrand Russell believed women's intelligence was inferior to men's and their main function was to be wives and mothers. His friends patronised her, assuming that any ideas she might express came from him. However, her political involvement enabled her to carve out an identity independent from her husband. She claimed that, quote, no one knows the importance of being a person in one's own right better than I do, having lived in the shadow of Bertrand Russell's reputation. She ran unsuccessfully as a Labour candidate for Chelsea in 1924, and she also helped establish the Workers' Birth Control Group, campaigning for women's access to advice about birth control which was an issue that summer school was also committed to. Dora Russell loved campaigning and public speaking. She chain-smoked, she was small, red-haired and untidy, 
And in her memoirs, she declared she was one of the first women in England to wear shorts. When, in the 1920s, she would buy a roomy pair of men's grey longs and cut them off short. Dora Russell argued strongly in letters to the Times for the Married Women's Association's policy of equal economic partnership in marriage, because the law had not yet abandoned the conception of a married couple as one person and that person the husband, she said. So she was an effective spokesperson for the Married Women's Association. In another letter published by the Times, she warned of the dangers of focusing on reform of divorce and not marriage. Quote, the Married Women's Association is right in its contention that economic questions play a very large part in marital dissensions. Hopefully by now you'll have gotten a sense of the personalities of some of the leading individuals of the Married Women's Association. As I'll explore later in this podcast, there were sometimes clashes amongst these strong personalities, even though the association itself was relatively small. I want to end this episode with a glimpse into the general views and philosophies of the Married Women's Association. Marley La Follette, who spoke earlier in this podcast, is a family lawyer and the daughter-in-law of Ada Summerskill. She was asked to speak at a Married Women's Association meeting in 1988 and was reported in their bulletin as, quote, emphasising her opinion that married women must be financially independent and not have children without certain guarantees. Marley La Follette confirmed the reports. When asked what she said that was so outrageous, she said, Well, nothing actually. All I told them was, if they wanted equal economic opportunity upon divorce, get rid of the children, make the husband take the children. Well, said my friend, no, she said, that's because children need their mother. And I said, utter twaddle. (laughs) You know, the children need a parent. The reaction from the association was palpable. I got the feeling that what they wanted was, yeah, a formula, A and B. I gave them a formula, but they didn't like my formula because it was too radical. Because remember, a lot of those women who were there, (laughs) they were exercising the power of the children, and that was their power in the marriage. So there's somebody coming and suggesting that they should give up, and I wasn't suggesting how they were going to get the other power. What did they say? Well, the, the talk was over, and then somebody said, uh, you know, question time. And I, there were one or two questions, but then they announced the time over. And, you know, instead of applause and uh, thank you very much, I was practically dismissed from, I mean, there was almost total silence. There was a little bit of, you know, polite sort of like that. Nobody came up and talked to me afterwards. It was just, I mean, it was a very hostile atmosphere. I I mean, I obviously just went too far. I think probably uh, there was a feeling of, who the hell does this woman think she is? American, coming here, no children, telling us what to do, you know. (laughs) I'm sure there was an element of that. I find this exchange really revealing about the Married Women's Association. They wanted answers for how women and men could be equal in marriage, even though statistically one of the biggest factors in gender equality was, and still is, caused by caregiving, whether this is for children or for elderly parents. Marley La Follette 
couldn't give the association a fix in law that was needed to be made. Because, of course, this isn't just a problem in law, it's a social one. There is no apparent or straightforward fix in law. Yet, the law was where the association decided to fight their battle. In the next episode, I'll explore how they wanted to go about doing this. Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare and Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Hale, is out now.